Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next offers listeners an in-depth analysis of the most pressing issues of the day. Our experts are given just six minutes to present, and then this is followed by a question and answer period for deeper engagement. I think you will find this discussion to be both informative and provocative. This program is moderated to be politically neutral. Our speakers will give their opinions, and then we encourage you to make up your own mind. This week's topics include redesigning the art museum, bioethics, U.S.-Israeli relations under a Biden administration, trends in America's immigration and our growing diversity, and finally, Tiger Woods' injuries. Buckle up. Our first speaker today is Madeline Grinstein, who is a Pritzker director of the Museum of Contemporary Art of Chicago. You may recall that Madeline spoke on what happens next last spring. It has been an extraordinarily challenging time for museums to serve the public because of COVID. With little revenues, museums have to decide who to pay and what art to sell to finance their fixed expenses. I look forward to hearing from Madeline about the growing demands for racial equity in exhibits and staffing. I'm also interested to find out if the art community will tolerate dissent on these choices. Mm-hmm. Next, we have a panel on bioethics. Our first speaker on this panel is Jacob Appel, who is the Director of Ethics, Education, and Psychiatry at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. Jacob has written many books, including Who Says You're Dead? Jacob has spoken twice on what happens next, and this time I've asked Jacob to discuss the bioethical issues around the COVID vaccine. Our second bioethics panelist is Jonathan Marino, who is the David and Lynn University Professor of Medical Ethics and Health Policy and of History of Sociology of Science at the University of Pennsylvania. Jonathan has written with UPenn President Amy Gutman the book, Everybody Wants to Go to Heaven, But Nobody Wants to Die. Jonathan will discuss issues related to informed patient consent, high tech science, and bioethics and public health. That is a lot to cover in the requisite six minutes. Then what happens next segues to American foreign policy, and Tevi Troy will discuss U.S.-Israeli relations and how the Biden administration will impact these strategic ties. Tevi is the former U.S. Deputy Secretary of Health and Human Services under George W. Bush. He's also the author of a new book entitled Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. Our fifth speaker today is Richard Alba, who is a distinguished professor of sociology at the Graduate Center at the SUNY University of New York and the author of a new book entitled The Great Demographic Illusion, Majority, Minority, and Expanding American Mainstream. Richard will be speaking about trends in American immigration and our country's growing diversity. Our final speaker today is Dr. Christopher Baer, who is an orthopedic surgeon and sports specialist for the college sports team of the San Diego State Aztecs. Earlier this week, Tiger Woods was severely injured during a car crash that required extensive surgeries to his legs, feet, and ankle. I want to learn from Chris if he thinks the Tiger can recuperate from these injuries and return to professional golf. All right, that is the agenda for today's session. Before we start, I want to remind our listeners that you can listen to our previous episodes of What Happens Next by downloading from our website, iTunes Podcasts, or Spotify. Our episode two weeks ago on GameStop has been our most viewed episode this year and has a particular interest to young adults who have been speculating in GameStop stock. I also encourage you to listen to last week's episode on economic uncertainty, COVID, and cultural literacy. All right, let's begin today's session with Madeline Grinstein from Chicago's Museum of Contemporary Art. Please go ahead, Madeline. Thanks, Larry. When we first spoke last May 10th, the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago had been closed since March 13th and would remain closed until July 
reopen and then close again in mid-November. I'm thrilled to tell you that the museum is opening again today, February 28th, almost a year since our first closure. At the time of our first call, Larry, we spoke about the impact of COVID on museums, such as the need to become click and mortar institutions with dedicated digital platforms alongside our physical buildings. Well, 15 days after our first call, George Floyd was murdered in Minneapolis, followed by the year that was 2020. Government, businesses, and cultural institutions all faced a new reckoning over their witting or unwitting complicity in the perpetuation of systemic racial injustice and structural economic inequity. As a result, as we sit here today, every museum in the United States is charged with a COVID and equity mandate. That is to say, whatever your mission may have been, you now must reconsider it given the impact that COVID and equity are having on your people, process, program, organizational culture, and importantly, your audiences. This will likely result in a very different set of investment and operational decisions regarding the museum's staffing, collection, exhibitions, and art history telling. What does that mean in terms of leading a museum? Well, fundamentally, it comes down to this. Our understanding of who we must care about, on whom and whose stories we must spend time and energy and resources has changed irrevocably and deeply. The pandemic made two things clear. The first is that we are deeply dependent on each other, which has led to intensified calls for an equality of condition and esteem. Secondly, the pandemic demonstrated that inequality is not an abstract idea. It affects not a generalized, undifferentiated population, but specific individuals, as well as communities, and most seriously, BIPOC communities, that also intersect with our own stakeholders our employees, visitors, artists, and supporters. And across the country, in many, many museums, including my own, there are three things that all of these stakeholders are seeking. One, equity. Two, ownership. And three, trust. So let's break down what each of these three mean in museums, starting with equity and using the MCA Chicago as a specific example. I will be the first to point out that the MCA Chicago is not an equitable institution. Our obligation is to move toward being one. A major step in this direction is taking a strong look at staff compensation, health benefits, and well-being, and redesigning our pay structure as financial capacity allows so that it reflects the respect we have for the people who work here. I can't commit to when we fully accomplish this because the problems have been years, even decades in the making and are endemic, in fact, to the entire nonprofit field being historically undercompensated. But we will get there. One major change we already implemented was converting much of our frontline staff from part-time to full-time positions with health benefits given their active interaction with the public. It's worth noting that museum activists have been very vocal in demanding labor changes like this across the country, and we are listening. Another equity lever is our content, the art we own and exhibit. Institutions are being called on to change their DNA, and there is nothing more important to a museum's DNA than its collection. 
The NCA's collection roadmap has long expanded the canon of standard Western art history with major purchases of art by Mark Bradford, Doris Salcedo, Lorna Simpson, and countless other artists of color from all over the globe. With regard to our most visible offerings, exhibitions, the NCA has been course correcting the traditional canon for years, highlighting a more diverse and inclusive art history through retrospectives of Carrie James Marshall, Howardina Pendel, Takashi Murakami, and an upcoming survey show of Latinx art from the Caribbean diaspora, in addition to which we have been 50% female representation in our exhibitions since 2015. There are myriad other actions needed to move toward equity, most obviously diversifying staff and board. It is a heavy lift for museums to become both post-COVID and equitable at once, but now that has to be the work and the building of equitable institutions is not up for debate. Now, let's look at what I mean by our public wanting ownership. One of the most affirming aspects of this past year was how many people claimed the museum as their own and insisted that their voices be heard. Let's talk about how the MCA is operationalizing this new reciprocity. I predict we will see more humility in how museums and their curators seek out people in the community as collaborators, as opposed to the typical image of the curator as the sole genius proprietor of a show. We will embrace the concept of nothing about us without us, that refutes the ivory tower model of the Museum on the Hill. This requires developing deep relationships and partnerships at a project's inception with members of the community who have lived experience of the topic at hand, joining with our curatorial academic experience together to help all of us better understand both the content and the context of our exhibitions and programs. This is a shared leadership structure that is in relationship with communities as opposed to belatedly inviting them to attend or participate only once the exhibition is open. Now, this is very important. This practice is not a surrender of quality or excellence, but quite literally a fulfillment of our mission to be of and for our audiences. Finally, let's talk about trust. This is a simple equation, A plus B equals C. Equity plus ownership generates trust. Across the society, there is a crisis of legitimacy for institutions and museums. Even contemporary art museums are now seen as emblems of the status quo. Surveys indicate that museums are trusted by the public when they see themselves reflected there in the makeup of staff, trustees, artists, artworks, and stories. Being seen generates trust, and trust locks in a sense of belonging which joins us to our community. This fundamental principle of what we at the MCA call social belonging and being audience engaged has driven our work at the MCA for more than a dozen years. The MCA, we want to share pride of ownership with our community because all of us know that museums are a place not only for seeing, but for seeing differently. And we all want to be a part of that. Through equity, ownership, and trust, we can get to that better future. Thanks, Larry. Thanks, Madeline. All right, let's get right into it. Um, okay, so the, the first concept is uh, you don't want to have uh, curators uh, on top of the hill making judgments as to what's going on in a given exhibit. Practically, 
how are you going to engage with the community to get their input into the exhibit before you do it? It really is about relationships. It is about curators being in the community, living in the community, spending time with our communities, our various communities. There isn't only one. And uh, trust is a kind of a cart and horse situation where you have to spend time uh, within those bodies and those communities of interest um, in order for people to then gain your trust. And then a conversation begins. So for example, rather than um, opening a show and then having, let's say, a panel of, of experts uh, from all over the country and from here uh, expound on the exhibition, why not have that panel happen first, three years ahead of the show, which is usually how long it takes to make an exhibition, and have that expertise actually funnel and inform the outcome of the exhibition. Mm -hmm. Let's use an example. One of my favorite uh, exhibits uh, I saw at the MCA recently was uh, for David Bowie. Uh, mm. David Bowie, uh, I thought it was just fantastic. It had his music, it had his, his art, it had his vision. Um, how, um, first, I mean, he, as a white male, is that problematic to have an exhibit on, Dave, on his work? Uh, and second, if it's uh -huh. not problematic, how would you engage um, with your community to decide if that topic was worthy of, uh, of taking down basically the whole museum? Um, and how would you engage with the community to do that? Right. So if I had to do it all over again, Chicago being the musical, magical place that it is, um, I would have asked Chance the Rapper in common, uh, what should a David Bowie show look like? And it might have possibly looked very different. Um, it, and as you know, David Bowie was one of the most popular shows in the history of the museum. So it, it did actually very, very much resonate with the community. And I think that the reason that it resonated among many other things is that it did have music as, uh, as a focus. And I think that that resonates very, very much with the city that is Chicago, not to mention this country. But you um, see what I mean? Like you begin with the experts within your community rather than presuming that they will like what you're going to show them. You know, what's great about the MCA is uh, international and other American tourists are very active participants in your audience. Um, mm -hmm. How do you think about making them happy and encouraging them to come visit um, in case their interests mm -hmm. are different than, um, I'll call it the local community? Right. I don't believe that there is a, first of all, I don't believe that there is much of a separation between local and, and, and global. You know, you know that word glocal. Uh, Chicago is an incredibly sophisticated community and, and yes, the work is on the ground, um, but it also resonates, you know, uh, with, uh, uh, with, with the concerns of people all over the place. Secondly, uh, back to COVID, uh, we're not going to see the return of tourism until 2024. And um, that, the fact that you know, tourism constitutes for us 50% of our audience for, for pre-COVID and for other museums more so, you better start focusing on your local community uh, if, you know, at the very least because your values depend on it, but also because, frankly, it's a good business model. Uh, this is Richard Madeline. Alba. I'd like to I'd like to ask you a question, Madeline, if I may. First of all, I want to you know I think that you're 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 aspiring to something that's extremely ambitious and uh, far-sighted. Um, but as uh, you know, looking within my own discipline, I I, I notice a kind of um, 
an oversight of sorts. And I think that um, in terms when when my colleagues say um, think about uh, you know rectifying injustice, they think um, in terms of peoples of color, and they treat whites as an undifferentiated kind of dominant group. And I, I'm actually I find that a bit problematic. And I wonder kind of how. Um, in thinking about bringing in new communities, is that also applied to differences among whites? And could you speak to that? Well, frankly, uh, we are at a moment where um, we are looking at a history where white people have been um, in the driver's seat for a really, really, really long time. And I believe that it is salutary to uh, look at other histories and to bring other histories into the fore. Um, and also to the fact that, as I think one of you may have mentioned before we got on, uh, being on our way to a majority-minority society, um, again, you know, this is looking at a more diverse and inclusive art history, that uh, a, more, a more inclusive and diverse art history. Um, we uh, are also being smart in terms uh, of, of our relevance and our sustainability. Um, we have historically, museum audiences are in, in a kind of majority approximation public. According to the American Alliance of Museums, the data describes our core museum audience is 91% white. Meanwhile, today's minorities will be a majority in our country by what, 2045? So if you're not convinced uh, that museums need to, need to center equity because they need to live their values, then at the least, let's understand the business case for doing so. Otherwise, we will really, um, we will really be irrelevant. And it isn't just diversifying our histories. Um, it, is, it is making a more inclusive art history. There is I'm not room. challenging this that. Is not yeah. a, this, is not a, this is not a subtractive exercise. This is not a subtractive exercise. This is not a sum zero way of thinking about it. You, this, is a, this is an expansive exercise. I, my only point is that 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 um, that expansion m might consider that there are groups among whites that haven't had the same kind of representation um, in determining what's shown in your in your museum, for example, as as the whites who who currently do that. That's that's all I was saying. I'm not sure what whites you're referring to, but okay. Okay, so I want to uh, go back to. Um, the, the city of Chicago for a second. So Chicago is currently pretty much a third Hispanic, a third white, and a third black. And mm -hmm. um, the, our demographics are changing radically. Um, currently, it, for the last 20 years, uh, we've lost 10,000 African Americans each year, uh, it, while the Hispanic population has been increasing even faster. Um, I expect Chicago probably in 15, 20 years to be majority Hispanic, um, but that basically questions uh, what it means uh, when we think about identity, uh, who is Hispanic, there'd be a lot of uh, mixed families, et cetera, which would be a topic of Richard's talk. Um, so when we think about identity, I'll start with you, Madeline. Uh, you know, you were born in Peru, you were, grew up in Venezuela, um, you're of Lithuanian Jewish descent. Um, how do you identify yourself and how should others identify you uh, in the context of this identity-related art decision? Just use it as an example. Right. Uh, well, um, 
I, I identify myself as a Latin American born uh, Western white uh, female. And you can go, you can drill down as deeply as you want to into age and so on and so forth. What, I'm, what concerns me about, about some of the direction in which what I'm talking about is, is uh, being misrepresented is that I'm not interested in um, identity politics. Uh, I'm not interested in, um, in, in, in a kind of, uh, um, in, in that. And, and when it comes to identity, uh, we're talking about demographics, it's true, but we're also, we also need to talk about um, the, um, the fact that um, we are, all of us, intersectional. We are also, some of us are also you know, gay, some of us are less able, some of us are, and so on and so forth. And all of those constituencies also need to, need to be um, recognized, honored, understood, and, and made room for. Uh, um, the ADA Act is, is obviously a part of that history. What about other museums that may not have the same sort of mission? Uh, I'll use two as an example. Uh, one would be like the Norman Rockwell Museum. Uh, another might be the Jewish Museum. Um, and in those particular ones, you know, obviously one focuses on the art of Norman Rockwell and the other maybe mm -hmm. have themes related to Judaic ideas, culture, and concepts. Um, right. Do you, think that, do you think that that sort of mission is legitimate? Um, can they continue to go that route, or do they too have to I change do. their? I do think that they need to. I do think that they also need to put the COVID inequity lens on their work, and I also know that they do. And and it really doesn't come down to um, for let's say for a historic museum or let's say for the Norman Rockwell Museum, it doesn't come down to stopping to collect the work of Norman Rockwell. It comes down to how you choose to interpret the work of Norman Rockwell and what histories maybe haven't been surfaced uh, when you look at a Norman Rockwell that might have that that have been embedded there. But now is the moment with new fresh eyes to actually bring that out. Um, and that's. The, that's what a lot of actually historic museums are talking about. So a number of museums, including the Met, by the way, are uh, starting to completely overhaul their interpretation practices and, and uh, inflect, let's say, a landscape painting, a 19th century landscape painting of, of, uh, of the Western United States uh, with the history, for example, of indigenous cultures and, uh, and, and, what, and the history of what happened uh, when the white settlers uh, met with the indigenous cultures, for example. Um, there may be certain curators or boards who may not be on board for this sort of vision. Um, I, you know, we just, you said, uh, we had a discussion, Madeline, where you mentioned that there's some of uh, curators have been fired over their um, not agreeing about some aspects of this. Um, should there be a toleration of different views on this matter, or should it be more um, stringent? Uh, should, should what be more stringent? Sorry, Larry. In other words, let's imagine uh, we had a curator who may disagree with you on this vision. They, they like their current mm -hmm. exhibits. Um, they think that's mm -hmm. perfectly fine. Uh, maybe they disagree with your equity and uh, inclusion uh, mandate, and they want to continue doing what, they do, uh, what they're doing. Um, should they be canceled, um, or should they be allowed to continue with their own vision of what they what they're interested in? Oh, you know, this is a very abstract question. Um, I think that all of the curators that work 
uh, at the MCA that I have the pleasure of working with understand the importance of contextualizing their work. Uh, they understand the importance of looking at uh, not of, of of looking at those guardrails of COVID and equity as we make our way through. Uh, I don't know that uh, I'm working with a curator that would insist on um, on a particular uh, way of working that, that wouldn't have those lenses on it. I'll give you an example that is happening at um, a non-contemporary art museum. I don't know if you, you know, if you, if you heard about the, the uh, sort of commotion around the Philip Guston retrospective, for example, um, which was supposed to be one of 2020's blockbuster art shows and had four prestigious stops, uh, the National Gallery of Art in Washington, the Tate Modern in London, the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, in the Museum of Fine Arts in Houston. And it was, you know, it's one of the great masters of uh, mid-20th century abstract and figurative art. The paintings, however, there's a there's a there's a, a moment in his career, in Gustin's career, Philip Gustin's career, where there are depictions of the Ku Klux Klan, satirical, even cartoonish ones that Gustin described as self-portraits, uh, contemplating the nature of being evil. They're very much about white culpability, including his own. But given that the year was 2020, the museum decided to postpone the show. And their directors released a statement saying that, you know, the way that we have curated the show, no longer, uh, no, given, given, what just, given what's happened in 2020, uh, the powerful message of social and racial justice that is at the center of Philip Gustin's work needs to actually now be surfaced more clearly and more clearly interpreted. And then they also pointed out the fact that the show was curated by an all-white team. Hmm. The cancellation was experienced a backlash uh, in an open letter by a hundred artists, uh, uh, many of them BIPOC. Um, they um, they said that the museums had failed to um, to integrate into their programs the challenge of renewed pressures for racial justice. I feel that what they did instead was to delay the show in order in order to put that new lens of what has happened to all of us in the last year to put a new lens of racial justice on that exhibition and have it be more uh, resonant and compelling. Um, so it wasn't, uh, I think, you know, I, the, delaying the show um, did not uh, avoid self-examination or, or censorship, but there was a misinterpretation of that. So it's to say that conversations about racial inclusivity at museums have been taking place for decades. It's, and, and, and it is really about contextualization. It does not in any way, to my mind, undermine the quality or excellence of curatorial work or the quality or excellence of the artwork. Um, and it does not erase anything, it adds. Madeline, thank you. Um, we're gonna move on to our second speaker. Uh, thanks, Madeline. Uh, our next speaker and our, our new topic is bioethics. Our first speaker will be Jacob Impel. Uh, Jacob will be speaking about the ethics uh, and efficacy of vaccines. Go ahead, Jacob. Welcome back. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. So the two topics I'd like to address today are what obligations people have once they're vaccinated to those who have not been vaccinated, and then a bit about the ethics of vaccine distribution and when you should wait your turn and how aggressively you should pursue vaccinations. So the first point I want to make is as an emergency room physician, when I received my COVID shot, which was actually on the second day it became available in New York City, I was extremely grateful. And as long as vaccines are in short supply, I intend to continue engaging in the public health measures that protect those who are further down the vaccination line. 
uh, masking in public, social distancing, not ho hosting large indoor gatherings. But at some point in the not too distant future, um, hopefully later in the summer, maybe not till the fall, but not forever in a day, there will be enough vaccine for everyone who wants it. But for those who choose not to get vaccinated, COVID will remain a threat. It's unlikely we're going to reach the presumed 80 to 90% level of protection we need anytime soon for herd immunity to kick in. So that raised the question that many in the vaccine light are beginning to ask themselves. What ethical obligations do I, if any, have to those who turn down vaccination when offered? We're likely to face a scenario where vaccines largely eliminate the risk of life-threatening illness to those who receive them, but while they reduce transmission rates, they don't lead to so-called sterilizing immunity. So while I won't get sick, I might still be able to spread at least some of the time illness to unvaccinated individuals. Uh, meanwhile, as a vaccinated person, I'm going to want to get back to traveling, hosting parties, living my life at the new normal. Um, so we'll once again face a choice between individual liberty and collective welfare um, or saving lives versus preserving freedom. But it's not that easy because there are going to be some people who probably can't be vaccinated for medical reasons. What do I owe them? Must I continue wearing a mask or hold off partying indefinitely? One can think of the analogy of airlines that ban peanuts on flights to protect passengers with severe allergies, but nobody suggests pulling peanuts from store shelves entirely. But also is to think about the implications of traveling abroad, because even if the vaccine is widely available in the U.S., it might not be widely available in developing nations, um, and we may have some obligation to the residents and citizens of those countries. Um, we're slowly seeing the concept of vaccine passports emerge. You've seen this first and foremost in, in um, Israel. Um, and they're rolling out an electronic verification system. I mention that because in the context of the last talk, we want to think about whether you'd want to impose that in the United States. Um, for example, should museums require you to be vaccinated in order to access their, their displays? Um, on the one hand, that might keep the people who go to museums safer. On the other hand, it might keep people who are vaccine hesitant, and particularly communities of color, which may have historical reasons for being concerned about vaccines, um, less likely to gain access. You've already seen the example of uh, cruise lines starting to sell tickets that require proof of vaccination. At the opposite extreme, you've seen several state legislatures now debating, uh, most recently Wisconsin's, whether or not there should be laws that ban the individual businesses from discriminating based on vaccine status. So you've seen it both ways. Um, and there's a particular concern I want to emphasize about creating society of haves and have-nots that exacerbates existing inequalities. Um, for example, there are going to be communities that are vaccine-hesitant vaccine because historically the public health officials have lied to them, and maybe we want to give them more time to understand the implications of not getting vaccinated. One can then make a reasonably compelling case for compulsory vaccination on three graphs. One would be to protect the medically unvaccinated and the small number of people for whom vaccines are ineffective. Secondly, the willfully unvaccinated may continue to create a drain on resources requiring more hospital space, diverting health care from other needs in the community, um, or from research for cures for cancer, for example. And third, the unvaccinated may increase the likelihood that variants will emerge in the community that increase resistance and therefore impact the ability of vaccines to function and then put the vaccinated again at risk. The second point I want to make is we need to figure out at what point you should get vaccinated and to what degree you should wait your turn. We've all seen this chaotic vaccine rollout, governed by a patchwork of state regulations that seem arbitrary and somewhat political. 
Um, and my concern is they may be inoculating the population overall against public health loss. Now, I realize the logistics of vaccinating more than 300 million people are very challenging, and nobody expected a perfect rollout. Yet it's hard to imagine an approach more Kafkaesque than the current one. Individual states have set their own rules. So as many people know, New Jersey vaccinates smokers, and New York vaccinates restaurant workers and pregnant women, and now Board of Education employees who work virtually. And the District of Columbia has announced plans to vaccinate anyone with a body mass index over 25, which would include me and about half the population, where the average is about 29. The perception is that the system favors individuals, all too often well-off and white, who can sit in front of their computers for hours, logging into scheduling portholes repeatedly, and those who have the means to drive long distances for an appointment. Multiple instances have been reported of hospitals and donors and their relatives receiving preferential access. And then, of course, we all know of the extreme examples, the casino magnate who allegedly flew to Canada to poach a dose from Native American elders, the vaccination of young, healthy members of Congress on the pretext of continuity of government, um, the Department of Defense's proposal to vaccinate al-Qaeda prisoners at Guantanamo Bay, while school teachers and group home residents in many states went without. And the take-home message is that public health policies are not applied consistently or enforced equitably. This already overlays on an existing framework that people have witnessed over the last year. They've watched Hasidic Jewish communities have funerals, and Black Lives Matter protesters march against racism, and motorcyclists swarm South Dakota by the thousands. I don't mean to equate those in terms of value, and some of those movements and traditions may be of more importance than others, but the take-home message is the rules don't apply equitably. And then when you see the governor of California dining out in a restaurant on a lobbyist's birthday, or the mayor of Austin vacationing in Mexico while telling people to stay home, it really gives people pause. Why does this matter? In the short term, as an ethicist, I'm often asked by people whether they should forgo vaccines to let others more in need get ahead of them in line, and how aggressively they should pursue vaccination, crossing state boundaries, for example, playing up health concerns. Three months ago, I was urging people to play by the rules and wait their turn. But now I'm hard-pressed to tell anybody to wait their turn when someone below lower risk is being vaccinated somewhere in the U.S. Ethically, maybe it's already your turn. But the bigger problem, and my closing point, is that in the long run, this matters because the odds are there will be another health care emergency sometime in our lifetimes, probably sooner rather than later, maybe a disease even more deadly than COVID-19. And the American people cannot afford to confront the next crisis with the mindset that the system is rigged and that only chumps follow the rules. So it's not too late to change course. What we really need now is to step back and impose a uniform system for vaccination with fewer, clearer rules, but ones that are meaningfully and stringently enforced. And I'll stop there. Perfect, Jacob. Okay, we're, before we go to questions, we're going to have our second panelist speak, and that is Jonathan Marino. Jonathan is a professor of medical ethics and uh, history of science at the University of Pennsylvania. Go ahead, Jonathan. Thanks, Larry, and, and thanks for including me. Uh, my comments are going to work beautifully with Jacob's. What I'm going to try to do is uh, provide a wider historical lens for the field that Jacob and I are both work in, which is often called bioethics, but actually has ancient roots in medical ethics. Um, Hippocratic Oath, if you look at it, has an interesting uh, void with respect to doctor-patient relations. It says nothing about what we would today call informed consent or patient self-determination or truth-telling. And by the way, it also doesn't say do no harm, which is a common misunderstanding. That happens somewhere else in the Hippocratic uh, corpus. So uh, wh why do we now call this field bioethics? 
Um, and the reason is mainly because something happened in the, in the 1960s, the late 60s, the early 70s, that did introduce the patient's voice in a way that wasn't the case in traditional medical ethics, which is very doctor-oriented. If you look at the Hippocratic Oath, it has a lot to say about the fraternity, the guild uh, of, of medicine, but it doesn't have really anything to say about how much patients should be told. People started rebelling against that for a lot of reasons in the 60s and 70s, so now we have consent forms, which, uh, you know, more often they're written by lawyers than they are by ethicists, but um, that is a problem between uh, the institution and the patient, and that is an issue we can talk about. Um, so what happened in the late 60s and early 70s, I think, brought us into two distinct fields that were related. Uh, one is clinical ethics, ethical issues about death and dying and about the beginning of life. Uh, these issues continue today. Also, we got involved in issues around human subjects experiments. So a lot of the conversation these days about um, how appropriately to do experiments concerning the vaccines uh, relate to longstanding conversations about how much people need to know, how much they're informed. You know, you don't have to necessarily be told that you're getting a placebo, but you have to be told you might be getting a placebo, right? We think about the way that these vaccines have been developed recently. So um, a couple of big events in the 60s and 70s that really pushed this, these conversations forward in, in clinical ethics, the, the famous uh, case of Karen Ann Quinlan in New Jersey in the mid-1970s, a woman who was in a vegetative state uh, whose parents went to court to get the right to speak for her about what she would have wanted. Uh, in the, and she lived for uh, nearly nine and a half more years in a vegetative state with excellent nursing care. And, of course, just a couple of years before the Quinlan case, in the early 70s, the revelations of the syphilis study, uh, which took us into human research ethics, as well as scandals in the late 1960s about human experiments. But it was really the, the syphilis study, again, hangs over us like a, a shadow today, uh, because so many people of color uh, remember the syphilis study, know something about it, and it's part of the reluctance, that, uh, the, the vaccine resistance that many people have. And I'd love to talk with Jacob during the conversation about um, what his perception is of that in his own hospital, particularly among the support staff. Um, so the field of bioethics had these two areas, clinical ethics, ethics of human experiments, and then I think especially in the 90s, you have the emergence of what I call the ethics of basic science. And a lot of that is around uh, the human genome study uh, project, which was the first sort of big physics project invested in by the U.S. government, billions of dollars to create what its promoters like to call uh, the, the blueprint of what it is to be a human being. A bit of an exaggeration, but okay, a lot of money involved. Um, and that, of course, has led to tremendous science, including the, uh, the development of CRISPR-Cas9, which we're aware of, uh, that uh, was applied unethically to those three embryos in China a few years ago. That was the big topic before the pandemic. But also, not only issues in genetics, the uh, ethics of basic science have also come to include the ethics of brain science, uh, an area I'm particularly interested in and have written a lot about. Uh, so, for example, um, we have repeated conversations about whether it's appropriate to put human uh, neural cells into animals. This actually started during the stem cell and cloning arguments in the, earlier in the 2000s. They're continuing today. There's, lot, there's a lot we don't know in particular about mental illness. There are some mental illnesses that do not have 
uh, adequate animal models, and really we're not doing it all well with therapies for many mental illnesses, particularly schizophrenia, uh, depression. So if you could uh, put these human neural-based cells into rodents, you could learn a lot, but how far do you go with that? So that's a, an ongoing discussion and controversy in the ethics of basic science. And finally, to talk about public health ethics, in my view, um, my field, bioethics, the literature is pretty thin on the ethics of public health. Uh, I think we are going to confront in, in our field um, a kind of bioethics reckoning about public health. And I, Jacob actually mentioned a couple of the problems that we really have left largely unresolved. And I'll, I'll just mention a few more to wrap up. If you look at textbooks in bioethics, there's a moral principle that is virtually absent. Uh, it's the principle of reciprocity. How much do we owe each other? Bioethics has largely been dominated by ideas about self-determination, autonomy, informed consent, and that's fine. Those, the, those standards are very important. Uh, at the same time, what we've seen in the last year is that we really don't have a, 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 a wide and deep appreciation for uh, reciprocity in our relations with each other. And I think that's something that we really have to talk about as a field and as a society. Um, the, the way that we have prioritized, and this goes to Jacob's point, the categories for therapies and for vaccination, you know, obviously the implementation, as Jacob says, has been at best a patchwork uh, and, and not one that inspires a lot of confidence in the system. Uh, we really need to take another look at that, um, and particularly how we can begin to understand the role of structural inequalities uh, in, those, in that prioritization. Um, you know, the relationship between public health measures uh, like masking and, so, and distancing and commercial activity, we really need to address this notion that there is an irre irreconcilable conflict between commerce and public health. Historically, that is not at all true. If you look at the history of medicine, uh, the, the, the growth of global GDP in the last 250 years has come right along with the, the growth of an understanding of terrible infectious diseases like cholera and smallpox. So there's not an inherent contradiction between commerce and public health, but there, acutely there has been one in, in the way some countries, including the U.S., have dealt with this crisis. And then finally, um, how can we have a better understanding of the role uh, of our obligations to people who have mental illness? We have really not done well with public health in general in this country. We especially have not done well with public mental health. And, and nobody goes to a city who doesn't see the fact that, you know, too many of our streets are like wards and mental hospitals were 30 years ago. Um, this is not acceptable in a, in a, in a civil, civilized society. So we need to take another look at the, the ethics of public mental health and our obligations to people who cannot take care of themselves. So I'm, I'll stop there and look forward to the conversation. All right, my first question, uh, thank you, Jonathan. It goes to you, Jonathan, for just finishing up here. Um, goes to the informed consent. Um, you know, we did a book club on boilerplate language um, a few months ago, and it, it seems to me that the informed consent documents that you said were written by lawyers, and I'm sure they were, um, are provided now uh, in every medical experience you have, whether it be at the hospital or at a doctor's office. Yeah. There's this piece of paper, sometimes multiple pieces of paper, and they ask you to sign every one of these things, otherwise they won't treat you. Um, do you find the whole informed consent to be completely bogus on its face? Uh, because one, nobody reads the informed consent documents, uh, and second is that if you did, you still have to give up your rights if you, if you want care. 
you know, in the, in the um, research realm, in clinical trials, we're much better in general at informed consent than in regular clinical care. This is sort of ironic, but because there have been so many scandals and tragedies about human experiments, that's a, that's a setting in which informed consent, you know, is, it, it, you know I think is pretty good um, for the lawyers and for administration. Uh, informed consent has to be reduced to a piece of paper. I understand that. But it works pretty well, except, and this is more Jacob's domain than mine, I'm not a physician, but, you know, doctors are not paid to spend time talking to their patients. In a clinical trial, they, that is supposed to be part of the deal. But, you know, it's really hard to have an in-depth conversation when you're expected to see four or five patients an hour. So um, I think the, the problem is bigger in the clinical setting than it is in the research setting. All right, I'm going to ask a question uh, to both of you on this one. Um, and let me start with Jacob. Jacob, um, in our previous discussions about vaccines, I asked you the following question. Uh, should we give, inject the virus into, um, directly into patients to find out what would happen? Um, I suggested that we could pay them, we could reduce their prison sentence, or we could ask for volunteers. And you mentioned to me at the time that that was a, uh, against um, what you viewed to be uh, the current view of, of what medical ethics was all about. Uh, since then, uh, the United Kingdom has announced that they're going to do just that. Uh, they chose volunteers, and they're going ahead with that sort of determining the, uh, the efficacy of vaccines. Um, I'm wondering, uh, and a question that I asked you, I think, last time, and I'll repeat now that we have a, a real experience with this, um, should the United States, um, if we condemn this sort of uh, methods of science, should we be allowed to look at the results? Um, should we um, should we consider it if we don't support morally the, these type of experiments? Because if we do consider it, then all we're going to do is push these sort of experimentations outside the United States. Sure. So, so my initial thought is, even though I know the British are running a small human challenge trial, we probably are not at the point where we need to do that yet, and we should give it some pause. Because even if we do this study perfectly, we want to understand the implications for how people perceive healthcare and perceive particularly vaccination, um, and particularly in communities that are often not considered um, or often are underrepresented. Anybody in your audience interested in the issue of minority attitudes toward vaccination, I urge them to read Harry Washington's seminal book, Medical Apartheid. That being said, um, and although there is certainly a long history of people engaged in illicit or immoral conduct as researchers having their data used, um, I think in the framework we have now, if we have the data, we're hard-pressed to tell ourselves, well, we have it, we shouldn't use it because we're going to encourage others to do it if it can save lives. It is a balancing choice. So um, when this was being discussed last year, this is Jonathan Moreno, uh, the goal of challenge studies for those who advocated them um, was to accelerate vaccine development. Well, we have vaccines now, so you, know, you don't have that argument anymore. Uh, I believe that the study in the UK uh, is one that has to do with the dosing level. That, it seems to me that's also getting pretty hard to defend these days. I think you know, there, there is a long history of challenge trials. I think they could be justifiable in certain settings. Big problem here is that we don't have you know, therapies in case somebody does get really sick. So 
um, I think it's really hard now to justify a challenge study. All right, so let, let me try uh, giving it to you. Let's imagine that um, we're interested in learning about combinations of vaccines and boosters. Uh, and we want to know if we can use the Moderna with the Pfizer, or with the Johnson Johnson, or with whatever. Um, and we also want to understand how that will work or not work with variants. And imagine that you know the South African variant hits the U.S. shores, um, and we see a second spike. Um, don't you want to know uh, if it's, what, what combination is best? And if we can save hundreds of thousands of lives, aren't you willing to uh, bend your ethical rules? I would say there certainly is a tipping point, but I'd have to be very confident that we're saving hundreds of thousands of lives by doing it. And you can always construct that sort of scenario. Where we stand now, though, um, we have lots of advances in vaccines and not nearly the same level of advances in therapeutics. It would be very hard for me to see a scenario where we would justify a challenge trial. Yeah, I think the you know you, you'd get some biostatisticians together. I, w- I think that a number of of those folks would say you can actually figure this out based on getting massive data in a in, from the populations that are um, are getting the different vaccines. So I'm not sure you could justify it. A big population study could probably give you that information. I would think. But let's imagine that the big population study would take six months versus take six weeks. Um, we know if we have to shut our economy down, we have trillions of dollars of loss. We've got um, schools have to be closed again. A whole generation of, of students will be denied their educations. I mean, there's, there's significant consequences to all this. Um, you, you may not need that many people to be uh, um, given the virus to, to know. It's hard to deal with a hypothetical like that, Larry. Um, you know, okay. I'll move on. Hard, 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 hard cases make for don't always make for good ethics. Um, so I'm, I would punt at this point. I would say let's see how this develops. You're not, you're not going to be able to get an answer to a comparative challenge study of different vaccines right away either. That's going to take a while. But I was uh, surprised that there wasn't a widespread moral outrage at the UK's studies. And why do you suppose that was? Well, I will say, what Jacob had to say, I, I would say that's because the challenge issue is sort of behind us now. I mean, I, uh, it just doesn't seem to be as relevant at the moment. Um, we'll see what the reaction is. I don't know what the reaction is among colleagues in the U.K. and in, in the bioethics world, but it just doesn't seem to be as present right now as, a, as an issue. By the way, they're taking 90 subjects, which is sort of interesting because, you know, that if, if you had 100 people and you had a 1% chance of a bad reaction, right, that would be really, that would not be good. Get le- I think they chose, I wonder if they chose 90 deliberately to keep the likelihood under 1%, even for these young, healthy volunteers. Yeah, I think it's, it's important not to forget the optics, that we talk about the benefits of these sorts of studies. One terrible study or one terrible outcome can change the future drastically. You could think, right. for example, about gene therapies and how the death of one patient transformed public attitudes for a decade. Yeah, exactly. And it was my institution, that uh, Penn, unfortunately, that had that episode. And it did stop uh, gene therapy studies for really for a couple of years, not only in the U.S., but around the world. So, you know, one death, uh, we, we, we really, this is a, a bad environment in which to have a problem like that with a vaccination study. I, I want to go back to Jacob's ideas about who we should vaccinate and when. Um, it, yeah, I think you're right. It does seem pretty chaotic right now. Uh, and with different states having different criteria. 
how would you feel if um, we just came up with a uh, first come, first served um, and get rid of all the criteria? Is so that, the problem, um, yeah, is that, more, many is that more ethical yeah. or is that a better yeah, public policy? Big problem is, you know, many people can't get there. Uh, so if your goal is to save as many lives or as many life years, and there's a debate about that, uh, then you're not going to do it that way with first come, first served. Yeah, first come, first served system tend to favor candidly well-off white populations. Right. Um, you could talk about a random assignment, but a random assignment like lottery tickets um, wouldn't save as many lives as possible. I do think there's something to be said for the system Connecticut has recently adopted, where they're simply lowering the age in a three-week cycle, because that's very regimented. And whether you're an essential worker or not is somewhat controversial, subjective. Whether or not you're 54 or 55, we can look at your driver's license. I think, you know, in, in this kind of – I'm sorry. Go ahead. Okay. Well, you know, I, I spent um, a couple of months in the beginning of this thing doing what I should have done many years ago, which is reading every book about pandemics and epidemics, you know, written by good, by good historians that I could find. And as one of them said, if you've seen one pandemic, you've seen one pandemic. Um, so as much as we hope we can learn from this experience, if there's another one, it's going to be a little different. Um, so we, we're just going to have to develop a system that does not uh, create as much mistrust as this one, but it, it will be determined by the variables of that situation. And, you know, every West Virginia, by the way, interestingly enough, a contrast to Connecticut, right, is doing pretty well. Um, and they're in a very different setting from those northeastern states. This is Chevy. What was the best one of those books that you read? I'm, I'm just curious, and what lessons did you get, take from that book? Oh, well, you, we'll have to have an offline conversation. I mean, there, there, there are so many good ones. Uh, um, there's one uh, about the history of cholera. Uh, there's one about the, about the, play, uh, the, the plague in the 14th century. Uh, there's, uh, there's some great writing about the way that smallpox was eradicated by WHO in the 70s. Um, you know, there's a lot of good ones. I, I would hate to pick one out because, again, e each situation is pretty different, um, and there are different lessons to be learned from each. Uh, Jacob, question for you uh, about one of your points about compulsory vaccines. Um, we, as a community, have demanded compulsory vaccines in the past. Uh, particularly as it related to students uh, who go to public schools. Um, do you think that there is uh, justifiable public requirements for this, uh, whether it be at work, uh, at school, uh, or for use of travel to allow our economy to come back to work and to minimize uh, potential contagion in our society? Or do you think that the individual liberty arguments of freedom of choice of families and individuals to choose whether or not to take the vaccine uh, dominates at this point? Sure. So, so I don't think we're at the point where we can even answer that question yet. Um, obviously, I, I think people who know constitutional law know that it's clearly legal for us to mandate vaccination. Uh, we could make people do it. That doesn't mean we should. Um, we'll have to figure out what percentage of people will do it voluntarily um, and where that puts us on the herd immunity graph and whether or not we can keep the public safe without compulsory vaccination. Um, but we also have to ask ourselves, if we were to impose it, 
how stringent will we be and how would we enforce it? We don't want to run the risk of excluding certain minority populations who are more vaccine hesitant from society. And I certainly imagine the prospect of locking people up for not getting vaccinated would not be politically tolerable um, and would be highly disruptive. So um, the verdict is still out. Um, just going to your point about that, if some minority group decides they uh, or have less active vac vaccine programs, um, why, why has that become an issue of fairness? In other words, if one group decides that they would, let's say, rather not get vaccinated and give up airplane travel, um, why, is it, why should our society view that necessarily as unfair on either grounds? Because excluding people from the public square, from schools, from airlines, from the economy, um, and there's likely to be a heavy racial overlay to this, um, will exacerbate the very inequalities we've spent the last year trying to address. I, I think it's problematic to shortchange populations for generations, and even during the course of the current pandemic, to set up uh, allocation systems of resources in which, for example, the African-American and Latino communities here in New York City simply fared worse. And then suddenly, when it's in the interest of the white majority to have people vaccinated, to turn the tables and say, we didn't help you, but now you owe us. So that, that should really give us pause. Um, and do you feel that this decision should be at the individual corporate level, or is it a societal question? In other words, let's say a business would benefit by having uh, an all-vaccinated restaurant. Um, could they make that demand, or do you feel that is um, not a, a decision that individual businesses uh, can have? And if it's at the commercial level, do you also feel, let's say that I'm having um, a dinner party and I'm inviting everyone, could I write, you know, anyone can come who's vaccinated? Would that be also viewed as uh, a violation of public policy and trust um, or unethical in any way? I mean, for your own dinner party, you can make any arbitrary choice you want. You can invite people who are like you. You can discriminate against race and religion. There are certain spheres we think are so private we don't want to intervene. Once you talk about businesses and commercial enterprises, we really want to make sure that anybody feels comfortable walking into a store and or a restaurant and not being second-guessed. Otherwise, among other risks, you'll have a risk of profiling. If certain communities are less likely to get vaccinated, there may be suspicion of those people, even those who are vaccinated, when they engage in the use of public services, and that would really be a problem. You know, at the hospital level, this is Jonathan again. I wonder what Jacob's hearing about his own institution. But my colleagues at Penn and former medical students are telling me that they know that there are a number of people in, in support roles in their hospitals who are vaccine resistant. Maybe, maybe it's a quarter, and they are often people of color. So I'm wondering what you know, Jacob's experience is with this in his own hospital. Oh, I, I think it's, it's a real challenge. Um, but it's worth noting it's been a real challenge before COVID. Um, a majority of states don't require flu shots for health workers, and some don't require masks. And yet, for the average person going into a hospital or a nursing home, you don't think you're going to get the flu from a healthcare worker. This just yeah. magnifies it. Yeah. Do you think, uh, another one for, from Jonathan for, for Jacob, do you think this will pass? Do you think that uh, six months from now, most people who are in support positions in hospitals will have been vaccinated? Before I started talking to people about this, I would have said yes. Um, I've had enough conversations now with colleagues, some of whom I, I deeply respect in various roles, not just ancillary roles, but direct clinical roles, um, who are deeply resistant and can explain very 
logically and meaningfully why they're resistant, even though I disagree with their premises, once they hold those premises, it's very hard to shake them. Yeah, yeah I think that's right. And um, let's imagine that uh, the state views that to be illegitimate, um, that we have patients in the hospital who are um, maybe if they, res if they get COVID um, will die. And yet these, uh, I'll call it non-vaccinated individuals who may be carrying uh, COVID are coming into the hospital uh, and potentially infecting patients. Should hospitals, should the state require hospitals to have their staff be vaccinated in order to protect our most vulnerable patients? Well, hospitals are pretty buggy places anyway. Right? This is Jonathan. It's not a place you want to be very long, uh, whether it's COVID or something else. So um, these, these, these infections that are related to being in a place where a lot of people are sick, it's not something new. I don't think it should be treated differently. Definitely a concern. Um, but uh, you don't want to send the message that uh, hospitals are forcing people to have be poked. I think that, in general, that's not the way we want to go. We want trust. Probably not the way to achieve it. Well, let's try a different example. Um, we understand that nursing homes uh, are very vulnerable places, um, and we've limited who can go in and out of those nursing homes. Um, how would you feel about requiring vaccinations of nursing home employees? That's for me. Jonathan? Jonathan? Well, What's so Jonathan? you're talking to somebody whose mother was in a couple of nursing homes, uh, and uh, it's definitely something that I've thought about a lot, uh, people coming in and out, not only the workers, uh, the aides, uh, but other, other patients be, being around her. Um, it, was a, it was a concern. I, I won't say it isn't. And yet, um, I wouldn't want the people who were taking care of her to feel as though that they were being forced to do something uh, that uh, they had you know, reason, pretty good reasons not to want to do. So uh, it, it's, it does put more of a burden on infection control in nursing homes. Many nursing homes are good at that. Uh, I think that's where you go with that. And let's say yeah, that the nursing like home themselves said something like, if you want to work here, then you have to be vaccinated. I'm not saying you have to work in a nursing home. You can get a job somewhere else. Uh, I can't risk killing these elderly people. Um, we know, for example, that sometimes vaccines are more effective with young people than older people. Um, and that they're incredibly vulnerable to these diseases. Uh, look, I'm not saying you have to get it, but you don't have, you don't have a right to work here. You're an at-will employee. Um, why, should should the, it be the company that make that decision uh, and not the state? You know, actually, the people... Well, let's who... imagine there's more profits. Uh, I can offer a nursing home where everyone is vaccinated, and that my competitor is offering a nursing home where uh, I don't know who's vaccinated. I, I'd send my parent to the one with the vaccination program. You know, oddly, residents of nursing homes tend to be people who have more of a choice uh, you know, than the people who work uh, about where they choose to work. Uh, so I, I would say the nursing home should make it clear what their policies are about infectious disease, and, uh, and families and potential residents can take it from there. You know, the yeah, EEOC... Go ahead, Jacob. Fortunately, I don't think we're going to face that choice with COVID going forward. Because I think that if you vaccinate the nursing home residents, we're going to have enough resistance that they're really not going to be at risk of severe illness for the kind that we're worried about. All right, what, let's, let's try the public schools. 
um, historically we have required uh, students and I think faculty to uh, be vaccinated in public schools. Uh, do you think it makes good public policy sense to require vaccinations of children in our public schools? Jacob. So it, from a ethical point of view, um, I can see a scenario where that would be desirable in the long run once there's more faith in the vaccine. But when you have poll data showing that 20, 30, 40 percent of people might turn down the vaccine, particularly for their children, you don't want a scenario where 40 percent of the public doesn't feel comfortable sending their kids to public school. So, so I don't think we're anywhere near that yet. Let's imagine, we, I don't know if we had similar surveys uh, for MMR or polio or, uh, or whatnot, um, yet we've gone ahead and done it anyway. And to my knowledge, they've gotten the kids vaccinated. Um, why do you think that if given the choice between sending your kid to school, that they would be so adamant uh, that they would choose not to do that? And alternatively, why don't we just create um, a virtual school for those children who are unwilling to, to take the vaccine? And we'll shut down all schools in the meantime. Well, I taught at a university, University of Virginia, uh, that definitely had students who came from homes where the parents decided to have them homeschooled, you know, not only for vaccination, but for other reasons of the kind of values they didn't like that were, might have been transmitted in their, in their kids' education. Um, but, uh, you know, I think when it comes to public schools and vaccination, uh, this sends an important message. It's, it's, it is evidence-based. Uh, and I think people need to be comfortable going into a public school. The polio case is interesting, Larry, because, you know, if you look at the history of polio, um, kids were lining up in droves to get vaccinated. And in the beginning, it wasn't all clear what would happen to them. In fact, 10 children died because of a bad lot of vaccines from, from a company uh, called Cutter in California, which is still cited by people who are anti-vaccination. So the polio case is one in which there was a real sense of civic responsibility to go out and get vaccinated as soon as possible. It was, it was not only willing, it, there was a real demand for it in school districts. Well, I'm sure there's yeah. a real demand for COVID-19 vaccines among kids as well. Uh, there may be some children that don't want it, but there's others that I'm sure who would be lining up. Yes, and I would be perfectly happy with that once we had better sense of how kids are responding to being vaccinated. I think we're getting good data now that shows that that's fine. It's really a matter of, of supply, not demand at this point. Jacob? Yeah, I, I think the, the idea of having 40% of the population send their kids to virtual school long-term um, unsettles me for its sociological impact. But I, I think you asked about the poll data. I don't know the data offhand, but anecdotally, seeing lots of patients and colleagues, there are a lot of people who are perfectly comfortable getting vaccinated for polio and measles, but still aren't ready to get vaccinated for COVID. And that, that plays into my calculus. Gotcha. All right. Uh, with that, we head on to our next speaker, uh, Tevi Troy. Uh, former U.S. Deputy Secretary of Health uh, for George W. Bush. Uh, he's going to speak about U.S.-Israeli relations under uh, the Biden administration. Tevi, please go ahead. Yes, thank you. I'd like to make three points today. Number one is that if you look at the history of infighting in the White House and in administrations, it has disproportionately been about Israel. Israel more often to be involved in infighting than other issues. Number two is that when it comes to democratic administrations, it's not necessarily a bad thing for U.S.-Israel relations to have infighting. And number three is this can give us some insight into the Biden administration. So let me back up and talk, tell, explain what I'm talking about. If you go back to the beginning of the state of Israel, which happens to coincide with about the beginning of the White House staff, Truman is president when 
Israel is first created, and Truman is the first president to enter with a full-time White House staff. And this also happens to be the period I cover in my book, Fight House, about infighting in the White House. In that very first administration, there was a big fight about the question of whether to recognize Israel. This may sound surprising to us today because we know that there's such a robust relationship between Israel and the United States. But in that administration, it was a real question. And the national security establishment was strongly in favor of not recognizing Israel. They just thought it was a bad bet. The Arabs were much more numerous, and they had standing armies. Israel was kind of a ragtag army. The Arabs had then, as now, a lot more oil than the Israelis did. And it just seemed like it was not the wise decision. And General George Marshall, who was the Secretary of State, was adamantly opposed to recognizing Israel. Truman, if he had just gone along with the prevailing view of the national security establishment, would have not recognized Israel. But he wanted to hear both sides. And he had a guy named Clark Clifford, who at the time was a junior aide in the White House. He later became Secretary of Defense under Johnson, but at the time he's quite junior. He makes the case in a meeting in the White House in front of Truman and Marshall for recognizing Israel. It's kind of a contentious meeting. Marshall doesn't want him there, but Clifford makes the case for Israel. Truman sides with Clifford, and Marshall is so mad that he never again speaks to Clifford or utters his name for the rest of his life. But that said, Israel gets recognized by the U.S. If we fast forward a little bit to the Johnson years, this is around the time of the Six-Day War. And again, the national security establishment is largely opposed to Israel and wants the U.S. to be either neutral or worse towards Israel in the lead-up to the Six-Day War. But there's a coterie of aides in the White House, some of whom are Jewish, but not all, who are advocating for a more pro-Israel stance. Among them are Larry Levinson and Ben Wattenberg. And in fact, at one point, Johnson yells at Levinson, says, you and Wattenberg are Zionist dupes, Zionist dupes in the White House. That said, their case has merit to Johnson, and Johnson actually softens his position and softens the position vis-a-vis the national security establishment towards Israel. And so again, some infighting in the, in the White House is beneficial to Israel. And then we go quickly to the Carter administration, where the two top foreign policy advisors, Big Brzezinski, who's the national security advisor, and Cy Vance, who is the secretary of state, they disagree on everything. They're cats and dogs fighting throughout the administration on Soviet relations, and on Iran. However, on Israel, they both agree. They don't like Israel. They're very critical of Israel. But there are some people in the administration, including domestic policy advisor Stu Eisenstadt, and Vice President Walter Mondale, who are more favorably disposed towards Israel. And I think that's helpful to Israel in the development of the, the uh, agreement with the Egyptians. And obviously there's a, the Camp David Accords, and we've now had 40 years of peace, sometimes cold, sometimes hot, but, but still peace for this 40-year period between Israel and Egypt. And Israel never again had to face a standing army in a war since that the accord was signed in 19. So that was a good thing for Israel, for Egypt, for America, and for the world, I would argue. Now, in more recent administrations, both the Clinton and the Obama administration, and you have some of the same people from Clinton and Obama in the Biden administration, there is more unanimity. But the unanimity is generally in opposition to the leader of Israel, who then, as now, was Benjamin Netanyahu. He was the prime minister in the 90s, and it was out for a while, but then he came back and is now the longest-serving prime minister in Israeli history. And the Clinton administration, I would argue, is more favorably inclined towards Israel, although not necessarily towards Obama. There's unanimity. If you look at the oral histories in the archives, they all said that they thought Netanyahu was a problem. They didn't like Netanyahu. 
in the Obama administration, I would argue, is even more hostile towards Israel overall, and especially hostile towards Netanyahu. The national, deputy national security advisor, a guy named Ben Rhodes, has, supposedly has a mind meld with Obama. And Rhodes' nickname inside the White House is Hamas. Not necessarily a nickname I would want to embrace myself, but that was his nickname within the White House. And so both those administrations, less disagreement, less infighting, but not necessarily favorable disposition towards at least Israel's leader. And so now we fast forward to the Biden administration. And again, as I said, some of the same, uh, same, the same characters are back in this administration, not Rhodes, but uh, a number of others. And the question is, how is the Biden administration going to be disposed towards Israel? I think we saw in the first month when there was a refusal to call Netanyahu kind of a signal from the Biden administration that it's going to be a very different approach than in the previous administration, which is certainly more favorably disposed towards Netanyahu as well as towards Israel. And as we approach trying to figure out what's going to happen, right now we've had general agreement within the Biden administration, not too many leaks, not too much infighting. But on this question of Israel, I think if there is infighting, on the issue of Israel, it might actually be beneficial to U.S.-Israel relations rather than something that is a negative. Thank you. Thanks, Sebi. I'm not sure I, I completely understand that last point. Um, why do we want infighting uh, as a way of supporting uh, U.S.-Israeli relations? Uh, in the Trump administration, I don't believe there was infighting. Uh, there was just, a, I'll call it, support of uh, the relationship. Why do we want there to be significant anti-Israel members in the administration, uh, and why is that more supportive, either short or long run, of U.S.-Israeli relations to have disagreement? Sure. Well, obviously, the best circumstance for Israel, and I think for U.S.-Israel relations, is if there's unanimity in favor of Israel. But I think that is unlikely. So I think to the extent that there is disagreement, the disagreement might make the case for Israel. That's why it's kind of a counterintuitive point. And if you look back at some of the previous administrations, if there hadn't been infighting, then I think Israel would have been in bad shape because the prevailing view against Israel from the national security establishment would have held sway. So um, it's, it's sort of a cheeky thing to say we want infighting. I don't really want that, but I want to make sure that there are different perspectives heard. And if there's unanimity these days in the Biden administration, it might not be a unanimity that is favorable towards positive U.S.-Israel relations. That's the point I'm trying to make. Larry, I have a question for Tevi. Jonathan Moreno. Go. Go ahead. Uh, what was the impact of the surprising result of the 67 war on, on uh, Johnson's thinking, the fact that uh, Israel won in, you know, in the famous six days? Did that sway Johnson at all? Well, I think Johnson was initially swayed by some of the arguments from within the political White House staff. Uh, where they were making the case that this idea of neutrality and word and deed, which was the statement of a Johnson spokesperson, uh, was not necessarily favorably viewed by the American people or by the American Jewish community, which it was a very important swing vote at the time. Mm. So uh, I think Johnson uh, looked to that, the, the political perspective. I think a lot, in the, a lot of folks in the national security establishment, Johnson included, were impressed with the Israeli victory, and within a few years, the Israeli victory began to Israeli victories and Israeli military supremacy used, started to bring uh, dividends and benefits to the U.S. because Israel would be able to capture Soviet weaponry, which America had not been able to see or analyze before. And this especially was the case in the '73 war. But the big thing in '67 was there was this incident of the USS Liberty, which was a ship that was shot down by uh, a U.S. ship that was sunk. 
by Israeli forces. And there's a big disagreement, even till today, whether it was accidental or on purpose. And national security establishment was making the case that it was on purpose. And the uh, folks who were more favorably inclined towards Israel said that it was an accident. And Johnson sided with the people who wanted to take Israel's perspective, gives Israel the benefit of the doubt on that issue. And I think the fact that Israel had turned the tide pretty quickly in that war uh, may have contributed to his view on that. Tiffany, this is Richard. Oh, we got a... Go ahead. Go ahead. Am I? Uh, okay. So I wanted to ask you a question. It, it seems to me that the, um, you know, the policy landscape in uh, U.S.-Israeli relations has changed very drastically uh, between the end of the Obama administration and, and today. And so I wonder what you think are the critical issues um, um, in terms of the U.S.-Israel relationship. And specifically, I'm sort of interested in what you think are the critical issues regarding the Palestinians. Yeah, I think that is a great question, Richard, and you're really onto something because I think the Abraham Accords, the fact that Israel has been able to create separate pieces, peace with with a number of individual Arab countries, something that John Kerry, for example, said would never ever happen, and he was quite adamant about that point in 2016. I think that really has reshaped the landscape, and so I think that um, the Palestinians feel a little left out of it. Uh, Israel feels like it can have other relationships. And, and more importantly, I think in the Obama administration, Israel started to say, hey, we've got to diversify our friendships because the U.S. is not always the reliable ally that we've had it for the last 30 years or so. So uh, Netanyahu specifically reached out to China. Uh, he built better relationships with India, with some of the Eastern European countries. In fact, Israel has much better relationships with Russia than the U.S. has. Now, I don't, I don't necessarily embrace all of those regimes that are included there, uh, but I think it was Netanyahu's attempt to di diversify his group of allies based on what he was seeing in the Obama administration that led to that. So, yeah, there is definitely a different landscape now in 2021 than there was at the end of the Obama administration. I want to go to um, the relationship between the Biden administration and particularly with Netanyahu. Um, I think there's going to be another election sooner or later, um, and it's possible that Netanyahu uh, will be out of power and that another um, Israeli government will come in. If that were to be the case, uh, do you think that would radically change the relationship between the Biden administration and Israel? In, in other words, is the problem uh, Bibi or is the problem something else that reflects uh, Israeli policies and not the man. Yeah, so first of all, there is going to be another election in the next month or two. Uh, so that is scheduled. It's not clear that the election mm -hmm. will bring any more resolution than the previous election. So there might have to be another election after that. However, Netanyahu has solidified his position with the strong vaccine rollout, and that might actually finally get him over the top to have a more stable government. Uh, I actually think that uh, Netanyahu is a convenient stalking horse for the people who are critical of Israel, but I don't think that their problem is Netanyahu per se. I think their problem is with Israel. And there is a consensus up and down across Israeli society. The, uh, the, the Oslo left in the 1990s was burned by the suicide bombings of the late 90s and early 2000s. And, and I, I don't think that Israel wants to go in that direction, regardless of whether Netanyahu is in power. So I think Netanyahu has been kind of a, a convenient enemy for people uh, who are opposed to Israel, but I, I think they'll still be critical of Israel, even if, let's say, Benny Gantz were to win, or certainly if Gidon Saar, uh, who's the challenger from the right to Netanyahu, I don't think he'll be any more beloved by the people who dislike Netanyahu now. 
One of the most amazing things over the last 24 months has been uh, Arab countries' recognition of the state of Israel. Um, and the Trump administration was in the center of that. Um, do you think that without the U.S. being involved that other Arab nations will wait uh, and to recognize the state of Israel? Or do you think they will continue to go ahead and this is a trend that will, will continue? Um, I do notice that in the example of Morocco, um, the U.S. recognized Moroccan um, aspects of, of that Western Sahara to be part of Morocco. To be part of Morocco. In other words, there was a quid pro quo to uh, uh, the U.S. gave certain uh, benefits to Morocco as related to the recognition of the state of Israel. Do you think the Biden administration will continue along that path and offer other Arab nations carrots to recognize Israel? Or do you think they're going to wait uh, either for um, a change in leadership in Israel or this is just something that they're not they're concerned about? I, I think it's a, a great question because I think that those relationships between Israel and other Arab nations could flower and could continue to grow. And so I, I emphasize the word could because the Biden administration has thus far said they don't oppose the Abraham Accords. So it's not the strongest endorsement, but they, they, they don't oppose it. And uh, if the Biden administration does want to contribute carrots, there could be more of those uh, new relationships blooming. And in fact, I've spoken to people who were in the, the Trump administration said that uh, there are a number of additional nations that are kind of on the cusp of being ready to recognize Israel. Uh, but it is really a question of whether the Biden administration is going to say we look favorably upon that, or we just don't like Netanyahu and we don't want him to have any more diplomatic wins. So uh, I think it's an open question, but a very good one. So, um, what, what are your expectations during this four-year period as it relates to U.S.-Israeli relations? Do you think the Israelis will just um, tread water, hoping for a, a change in administration? Do you think that uh, infighting within the White House will change to make it more supportive or less supportive of Israel? How do you see this all kind of playing itself? What are your, what's your best guess is how this will play out? I don't think it's a smart move for Israel to tread water. And in fact, the new Israeli ambassador to the U.S. and the U.N., the first person to kind of double-hat it since Abba Eben, uh, has specifically hired an advisor who is a former Washington Post reporter to teach him how to, quote, speak Democrat. So I think that if you are someone on, uh, in, in senior levels at Israel, you have to recognize that the, the Democrats have won, uh, the Republicans have only won a majority of the popular vote once in the last almost 30 years. And I, I don't think it's a safe bet to expect the Republicans to win any presidential elections in, in the near future. That doesn't mean they won't, but you can't sit around saying, oh, I think the Republicans will be back at 25 or 29, because it's not clear that they structurally have the capacity to do that. And if the Republicans do win, then given the configuration of the, the parties right now, and I intentionally was not talking about the Republicans in my speech because it's a Democratic administration, and in 2025 or 2029, or if there is ever a Republican administration, I'm happy to come back on, Larry, and talk about it then. But I think that if you're a Israel, you say, well, if the Republicans win, we should be okay. But we need to work on making sure that we're okay if and when the Democrats remain in power. And I think that's how Israel's going to be viewing it. Uh, another topic is um, Iran. Uh, Bibi has been uh, very um, opposed to interacting uh, with some of those issues um, and the, the Biden administration has, has suggested it may go back uh, to working with Iran. How do, you, how do you think that issue will play itself, play itself out? Yeah, I, I think that Netanyahu made a strategic mistake in how 
hard he went against the Iran deal last time. Not that it was a good deal, but he really alienated the Obama administration. Now, that said, the Obama administration did plenty of alienating of Bibi as well. But if you're the if you're the weaker power, which in this case Israel is, you need to work very hard to maintain those positive relations with the, the U.S. So I think, uh, I think they're going to rethink how hard they go after it if the U.S. does re-engage and try to start up that Iran deal and say, well, if you're going to do it, let's, let's at least get something and drive a better bargain. And um, I, for one, am glad that uh, John Kerry... Uh, even though he's in the Biden administration, won't be negotiating the deal because he uh, all he wants is a deal. He doesn't necessarily care what the details are. And, and I get the sense that Blinken, who's Secretary of State, and Sullivan, who is a national security advisor, are a little more hard-headed. That doesn't mean they love Netanyahu more, but I think they um, they're, they're looking to get um, they're probably looking to get a better deal, whereas Kerry is looking to get a deal. And then one last thing on on this point, which is that Sullivan and Blinken have been making it clear that they really don't think that the Middle East should be the focus of their attention, and they really want to, A, renormalize relations with, with the European nations, especially the Western European nations, and B, really focus on the relationship with China and figure out where that's going. And I think that's going to be most of the focus of U.S. foreign policy over the next few years. You opened your comments with a discussion about the uh, relationship between our national security types like George Marshall and um, – their relations with the state of Israel. And I'm wondering, um, is it opposite today? Uh, does the national security staff and uh, relations with Israel now much stronger than, let's say, state uh, or the administration uh, in the yeah, Oval Office? It's a good question. It depends where. I would say the U.S. military is much more favorably inclined towards Israel than it was back in the 40s and 50s in, in both the Republican and Democratic administrations. And they recognize the benefits of allying with Israel and also the, that uh, Israel has given them a lot of help in terms of uh, military intelligence and access to, uh, to Soviet weapons in the past and, and joint, joint working together on tactical operations. Uh, the State Department still remains a, a, a division, a, a department that is much more critical of Israel. So you, you see more of a push me pull you between state and defense Whereas in the past, in the early days, 40s and 50s, state and defense were more likely to be linked in being critical of Israel. Tevi, thank you. We now move on to our next speaker, uh, Richard Alba, who is a distinguished professor of sociology at the Graduate Center at the City University of New York. And he'll be discussing his uh, America's immigration and growing diversity. Go ahead, Richard. Uh, thank you very much, Larry. Great to be here. Um, so um, I'm concerned about how we should think about the changes that are taking place in the United States because of ongoing immigration and growing diversity. And um, the widely believed view, which we actually heard a little bit earlier in this, in this, in this uh, discussion, is that the U.S. is inevitably becoming a majority-minority society as a result of demography, um, and that the moment of transition is expected to occur around mid-century. Um, I think this view is both faulty, and I'll, I'll say why. It's also polarizing in the sense that um, it appears to be driving many whites toward white nationalism. And uh, we have very good evidence of this from the work of uh, numerous social psychologists. And we also, um, in terms of the political science uh, analysis of the 2016 election, we have evidence of its um, major political effects. Um, this view, the majority-minority society view, is faulty on two grounds. 
Um, and both of them have to do with a social phenomenon that is playing out in the background without a lot of attention uh, being paid to that, uh, paid to it. And by that, I mean the rising level of mixing across ethno-racial divisions within families. Now, of course, intermarriage has long played a key role in the formation of um, the white majority and of minority groups. And what stands out today is the growing number of marriages and families, I might say, formed without marriage um, that involve both whites and minorities. So currently about one in seven marriages celebrated today involves white and non-white or uh, Hispanic partners. Needless to say then, a substantial fraction of children are growing up in families with a parent who is white and a parent who is not. Um, more than 10% of babies born today are in such families and the number has been growing over time and there's no reason to think that it will not continue to grow um, in the future. So it's in this aspect of the phenomenon that there is one reason, lies one reason for the faultiness of the majority minority view. Um, there are data problems and specifically there are problems in the ways that the Census Bureau collects and codes data about ethno-racial um, background. So surprisingly to me at least, uh, the great majority of children with a white parent and a non-white parent are counted as non-whites in census public data reports, even though their parents usually report them as being white and also something else. Um, the other reason for the faultiness of this, of this view of the future has to do with the social trajectory of um, mixed uh, uh, minority white um, young Americans, which is by and large, I, I would say, completely overlooked in the minor majority minority view of the future. Um, that trajectory can be fairly described as one of increasing integration into the white dominated mainstream, a form of assimilation. And we have a lot of evidence that um, mixed um, young people grow up in more favorable circumstances. Their, their families are better off. They live in um, more mixed neighborhoods than minority-only youth. They have white friends, even as children. Um, they are more likely to complete college than minority peers. Um, and above all, um, they have very high rates of marriage to whites. So that is a sign that they are well integrated into social environments with uh, many whites. That isn't to say that they are necessarily becoming white, or at least only white. Now, in my <clears throat> sort of optimistic description of the experiences of, of mixed young people, I have to note a hugely important exception. Um, and it, it's one that testifies to the continuing importance of racism um, as an American problem. And so individuals who have black and white parentage have a very different experience from what I just described. They have frequent encounters with racism. Um, we know, for example, from uh, survey work that they are very likely to report police um, harassment. But for the majority of mixed minority white Americans, the patterns of integration look very much like, in important ways, the assimilation experienced in the mid-20th century by ethnic Catholics and Jews, 
the descendants of the late 19th and early 20th century immigrants. And um, this earlier experience is, I think, a corrective for a faulty conception of assimilation that many Americans share. We view assimilation wrongly, I think, as making the minority look like the majority. But that's actually not what happened in the middle of the 20th century. The dominant group through U.S. history up to the middle of the last century was white Christian, specifically Protestant. But the assimilation of these ethnics did make did not make them become Protestant. Instead, the mainstream society changed and its identity shifted from white Christian to white uh, Judeo-Christian. And um, at this time also, ethnic identities like Italian-American became um, acceptable ways of labeling oneself. So this portrait seems to me a likely scenario for the future. And that is to say that the mainstream society will expand and become more diverse or multicultural, if you will. At least that's going, this is going to happen in some parts of the country. And our culture, I would say, already shows signs of this shift. For example, the popularity of the Hamilton, the musical, the, uh, the numerous films now that are, made, that are now made with um, only minority leading uh, uh, you know, leads. Um, so, the, you know, but there is a paradox and we are still a society of great um, inequality and one where racism makes it very difficult for African-Americans and other dark-skinned Americans um, to, to participate fully in the mainstream. But we're also a society where assimilation seems open to many descendants, uh, especially of the new immigrants from Asia and Latin America. I'll stop there. Thank you, Richard. Um, I want to start with, um, like, what is white? Um, recently, there has been discussions about Asian Americans and whether or not they, they are white uh, for this identity purpose. Um, and my first question is, is what is it um, that makes them mainstream? Is there a natural inclination for all people to want to be in this majority group and therefore try to uh, be perceived as whether it be white or, or whatever that uh, I, I don't think is? I don't think it's necessary to be perceived as white. I, I would define the mainstream in the following way that it's a, a sort of it refers to sectors of society where ethno-racial origins no longer play a very important role in uh, determining kind of what people's status is and how they interact with others. Um, and so many Asians, certainly those who are Asian and white are, are in this situation, are able to you know, interact rather easily with, uh, with say, whites but that doesn't that doesn't really make them white and people can still recognize that there's some kind of distinction um, involved actually i often go back if you don't mind to my own childhood experiences i grew up in a part of the bronx where there's a great deal of mixing um, between uh, ethnic catholics and jews and um, you know as a child i had friends who were different from me. I, 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 was, I grew up as Catholic. I had many Jewish friends. I mean, that 
that they were Jewish really didn't play very much role in terms of determining the kind of friendships we had or, you know, how we interacted with one another. But it wasn't as if this was invisible to us, this difference. Can I ask a question, Jonathan Moreno? Yeah, sure, Jonathan. Go. So my dad immigrated to this country in 1925 from Austria. Um, he actually made it into the country because he bribed somebody to get an extended visa, mm-hmm. and then a woman married him in the late 1920s. That's how he got citizenship. It was a bad time to try to get into this country if you were a Jew or from uh, you know, mm-hmm. Southeast, uh, southern, Italy, southern Europe, uh, Eastern mm-hmm. Europe. Immigration laws started to change in the 1960s. You know more about this than I do. But how do you think mm-hmm. immigration laws and policies will affect what you're describing? That's a very good question. Um, well, I think, first of all, that you know there is a very large population now of, of immigrants and their descendants in the United States. It's about a quarter of the population. Um, so even if um, immigration today were to shut down in the way that, let's say, the last administration hoped to shut it down, Um, this would still be an issue because there would be these very large groups of people who were, um, you know, distinct in terms of their places in American society. So I I, I don't think that immigration laws are likely to change this ongoing process very much, although obviously they will affect the numbers of people in, uh, in different groups. I do think, um, that the United States needs immigrants and, um, you know, there are, uh, I mean, think, think of our healthcare system, which I know you know a lot about, and I don't see how that can survive uh, without, without immigrants. So I think that uh, the, the sort of the, the pressures of economic need are going to force us to uh, continue to take in large numbers of immigrants. And that doesn't just mean people coming with good educations from India. We really also need people to fulfill service jobs. And those, you know, those have often been filled by the people coming from Latin America. And by the way, Jonathan, I have to say that I noticed uh, that I, I looked you up as you were talking. And so you're the son of Jacob Moreno. Yes. And that's a name that means a lot to me because I began my uh, sociology career as an analyst of social networks. So, oh, you no. know, thinking <laughs> in terms of, of Moreno's sociometry. Yes. So. We we'll have that off, time. We'll talk offline. That's great. <laughs> Thank you for mentioning. No, just as this is Larry. Just as another aside, um, my grandfather uh, attended the University of Vienna uh, Medical School, which was the same medical school uh, that That's Jonathan's right. father attended as well. And in, in, in the very same program, they uh, were both uh, in the psychoanalysis to, uh, psycho uh, division, which I think mm-hmm. is really interesting. We they took some of the same teachers. Uh, Jonathan and I had spoken about off, offline as well. So I, I just think it's interesting that you can uh, be part of a community uh, in one country. And then um, now Jonathan and I are both in the University of Pennsylvania family, either directly or, or, or past. So, um, you know, Richard, I was thinking about maybe taking the temperature down a little bit. Uh, we're, you know, we're so sensitive um, to race and thinking of it through a partisan eyes here in the United States. What if we chose a different country where there's been hostility and where things have kind of tempered? Uh, and I'm thinking, like, let's pick one like Ireland, for example. So yeah. you've got Ireland, you've got Northern Ireland, you've got Protestants, you've got Catholics. And it was very bloody uh, one generation ago. Um, and I, I, I perceive that the temperature has come way down. I, I don't know how much intermarriage has played a role in that. And I don't know how much... 
um, you know, whether or not religiosity has declined or necessarily. Yeah. I, I think, well, I don't know a lot about the Irish situation. So I, I think, so we're both on kind of uncertain ground here, but I do think that um, there have been real attempts to um, kind of of a, of a type of affirmative action has been used to make breakthroughs for Catholics um, into sort of the different economic tiers of uh, Irish uh, society. And by the way, um, if we look at um, the tiers of, of the labor market in the United States, there's something quite remarkable going on, and that is the penetration of the children of immigrants into the higher tiers of the U.S. labor market. This is something I've done research on. So if you look at young people who are entering the occupations that are ranked, uh, let's say, in the top quarter, about a third of them now are non-white or Hispanic. Um, and a big part of this, I mean, we all know the Asian story, but a big part of this is also native-born Hispanics. Um, and I mean, if we look also then at um, like the, the pool of people from uh, which uh, those moving to the higher tiers are going to be hired, like college graduates, that's changed very dramatically um, in recent decades. And um, I, I, in my book, I use an American uh, Council of Education report that comes from 2019 and said that now 60% of the BAs are awarded to whites and 40% to people who are uh, not white. And the biggest advance, according to this report, in the last decade was the surge of Hispanic college graduates. So, you know, I think there's a kind of ongoing process of mobility and uh, integration into the mainstream that particularly affects the children of immigrants. And um, the, the, again, the, the sort of awful note in this story concerns African-Americans because they are not benefiting, not nearly as much from the sort of changing uh, diversity in, in college graduates and among and in the higher tiers of the labor market. Our next topic is going to be on Tiger Woods, and I'm wondering to use him as an example of, of mixed race. Um, Absolutely. In the documentary he himself says he's Cavalan Asian. Exactly. <laughs> and, you know, here's a guy who's part Thai, part Chinese, part Indian, part black. Um, and, you know, he, I think initially he came out uh, when he first started in those Nike ads as articulating his his African-American and, and black nature. Mm -hmm. But there was a sense among the African-American community that he really wasn't black. Um, how do we think of, of Tiger as an example of someone um, who fits this mixed culture and how the public responded um, to him? Well, um, I mean, I think, you know, I, look at the concern um, that's been expressed over his accident. So, you know, I think that he really is a kind of a very, very mainstream figure. Um, and, uh, you know, and uh, I mean, of course, he also he, he married a, a white woman, um, which is, of course, what I described about as many of the mixed individuals are marrying whites. So I think he, he does. I, I, he does exemplify these patterns. And then you also discussed um, how we went from what white really meant was white Protestant, and then it became white Judeo-Christian. Um, yes. Do you think that's a function of changes in religiosity? 
or a lack of uh, changes in fears of what Catholicism, uh, why it was a threat to uh, well, the Well, I think culture. definitely it involved changes in fears, especially about, about Catholicism. I mean, the 1950s, you know, is where this process really became very visible. And this was still a time of great religiosity, I think, in American society. Um, it really meant that, uh, you know, that Catholicism and Judaism in some forms became kind of just American religions and their their kind of place in American society was no longer questioned in the way that it had been, let's say, prior to the middle of the 20th century. I mean, look at the contrast between the uh, the um, the the 1928 presidential election and the 1960 presidential election. So, you know, in 1928, Smith is the first Catholic nominee of a major party for president. And um, uh, the, in many parts of the country, Protestant ministers thundered from their pulpits against electing a Catholic um, to the presidency. And you talked of fears. I mean, there were you know, there, there were these kind of conspiratorial ideas around at the time that uh, there was even, I think in the South, there was a picture of Smith cutting a ribbon on a New York City subway tunnel and the legend read that he was cutting a ribbon on a tunnel through which the Pope would enter the United States, you know, after his election. And it's not as if all of those fears melted away in 1960, for sure. And 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 uh, Kennedy was required to kind of uh, uh, make the case to the American people that he would not be guided by um, his religion in uh, as as president. But I think you know it was just a very different time, and and Catholicism was much closer to widespread acceptability. Richard, this is Tevi. Um, you said something interesting about many whites have embraced white nationalism. Can you give me a sense of what many is and what is white nationalism, meaning do they put well, on... Well, I think, and, I think and, okay, so... so and, um, and, then, the, and is the, there some kind of, I don't want to say justification, but you know, is there a sense of if you're making whites the kind of the enemy, then people who wouldn't have banded together previously, let's say Polish Catholics and, and you know, British-descended wasps saying, oh, well, I guess we are in this commonly together because we are seen as, as the enemy in this society. Well, first of all, I have a big problem with the majority-minority narrative on just the grounds you named. Name. That is to say, it portrays a society that is fractured between two different groups, two blocks, one of which is, according to it, you know, declining in numbers, and the other of which is is increasing in numbers. And presu and presumably, you know, the person who hears this envisions a kind of competition, which is gradually becoming um, more in the favor of the minority bloc. So, I, I, I mean, now, social psychologists have done studies of how whites react to this narrative, and they have found that there's a general pattern of whites being being moving in a more conservative direction on policy matters, on racial attitudes. I mean, the narrative has a real effect. And um, in uh, as I'm sure you know, that the political scientists who've analyzed the 2016 election have said that 
one of the factors that drove Trump's win was the racial resentments felt by many whites. I mean, presumably these are the people who are reacting most strongly to this kind of narrative of change in, in American society. I, I think the narrative is misguided on many levels, but it's simply distorted. It distorts what's really going on in American society, which is that there are these ground level processes by which many people are integrating across these ethno-racial boundaries. Richard, thank you. Um, we now go to our last speaker, Dr. Christopher Baer, who is a orthopedic surgeon uh, and a sports specialist with San Diego State's Aztecs. Um, he's also obviously in private practice and has been so for 23 years. I've asked Christopher to speak about Tiger Woods' recent car crash and his surgeries and to find out what this means if he has a professional golf career left in him. Christopher, please go ahead. Thanks, Larry. Uh, I first want to say, uh, since uh, today's program included uh, bioethics and we have Jacob and Jonathan on the program, that I don't, uh, I'm not Tiger's physician and I haven't uh, been treating him, so I'm not violating any HIPAA laws. Um, that said, as most of the world knows, uh, this past Tuesday, Tiger Woods was injured in a single vehicle accident when his car veered across a median hit a sign, hit a tree, rolled several, several times and came to stop about 40 feet off the opposite side of the road. Um, when the police officer came, he was alert and conscious, uh, which is, which is uh, and not, not in any pain, which is not unusual due to probably the level of adrenaline that, that he was having. Uh, he was extricated from the vehicle through the windshield uh, when paramedics came, they stabilized him, which means they put him on a spine board. They put a collar around his neck to stabilize any potential spinal injuries, and uh, they stabilized his fractured leg and transported him to Harbor UCLA Medical Center. Um, the typical uh, drill for the trauma team, they, they get alerted that a trauma victim is, is being referred in, they're there and ready. The trauma team consists of uh, general surgeons, orthopedic surgeons, nurses, uh, and uh, when he gets there, they assess his injuries. Um, obviously, they want to rule out life-threatening injuries by sending him for CAT scans of his head, spine, pelvis, abdomen, to rule out internal injuries. Uh, and um, fortunately for Tiger, uh, it appears that his injuries were really confined to his lower extremities, uh, particularly his, his right leg. Uh, and what, we don't know a lot, but what we do know about his injuries, which was released, um, a statement was made that he had comminuted open fractures affecting both the upper and lower portions of the tibia and fibula, and these were stabilized by inserting a rod into the tibia. What, what this means is comminuted means that it's not a simple break uh, with one fracture line. It means that there are multiple fracture lines, and in this case it sounds like the upper part of the shin bone and the lower part of the shin bone were fractured. Uh, open fracture means it, uh, what people uh, know as compound, which means the bone has pierced through the skin to the open environment. 
Uh, and the, uh, the stabilization of this is typically with a titanium rod, which is inserted uh, at the top of the shin bone, down the center of the bone, uh, to uh, realign the fracture and uh, stabilize it so that the fracture can heal. The next piece of information that was given was, quote, additional injuries to the bones of the foot and ankle were stabilized with a combination of screws and pins. And this is perhaps the most concerning uh, of his injuries in terms of his return to golf. Uh, we don't know exactly what those foot injuries are, but common foot injuries from a motor vehicle accident, uh, especially the right leg where the, where the foot is on the brake pedal, uh, can be injuries to the talus bone, which is the, the bone directly under the tibia bone and is part of the ankle, and uh, another type of injury to the midfoot, which is known as Lisfranc injuries, and again, I don't know what his injuries were, but the fact that they mentioned foot injuries uh, and that these injuries need to be stabilized with pins and screws um, bring, bring that level of concern. Um, there are many small bones in the foot, and uh, when these are traumatized, uh, the recovery and the, the resultant sequelae can be chronic pain and stiffness and the development of post-traumatic arthritis, which would certainly affect his ability to walk normally. The third piece of information we received was that the trauma to the muscle and soft tissue of the leg required surgical release of the covering of the muscle to relieve pressure. And this, this procedure that was done is, is known as a fasciotomy. If you look at pictures of his car, you could see the, the damage to the, the, the metal and the steel of the car. Well, imagine that same impact to the soft tissues of his leg. It causes the, the muscles to swell, and the muscles have a, have a covering called the fascia, and if the muscle swells too much, the pressure inside that muscle becomes too great where the muscle does not get proper blood supply, so the muscle can die. So this is an emergency requiring the surgeons to uh, create um, incisions on both sides of the leg uh, and cut through the skin and then cut through the fascia to allow the swollen muscle to be released. And these wounds are left open uh, while the muscle uh, swelling goes down. And this, this can be, uh, they're left open for a period of days to even weeks sometimes. Uh, and sometimes they can't be closed primarily, and rather they need, uh, they need skin grafting uh, to, to cover these wounds. So the, the early complications following this, this uh, injury, uh, the open fractures where the bones pierce through the skin create a, uh, a concern for infection, so he's likely on intravenous antibiotics right now while he's in the hospital. Uh, trauma patients can, can be affected by blood clots and pulmonary embolism, uh, and so he's likely on blood thinning medication. And these open fractures can cause uh, other wounds uh, and need for soft tissue skin covering, and these are the, the additional uh, procedures that likely need to be done over the, over the coming days and weeks. So what is his recovery like? Uh, the fractures are going to take 8 to 12 weeks to heal, uh, he's going to need pro uh, protected weight-bearing while these fractures heal, which is 
going to cause his uh, already injured muscles and soft tissues to atrophy. Once his fractures heal, he can begin weight-bearing, and he's going to require extensive physical therapy to learn how to walk again with a normal gait and restore the flexibility of his hip, knee, ankle, foot joints, uh, and then restore the strength of his muscles. This, this overall type of recovery is going to take 8 to 12 months, uh, and I would imagine it's more on the longer end because of the magnitude and the multitude of injuries that he sustained. Uh, as far as his return to golf uh, or high-level golf, um, it's concerning because obviously anyone that's played golf, uh, the ability to stand and walk for extended periods of time for practice and play is necessary. Uh, a typical professional golf tournament requires uh, walking uh, of six to seven miles in a given round, and these, these requ this requires walking on uneven surfaces. Uh, the elite golfer needs exceptional balance. Uh, the, the, the feet and the legs uh, have to provide a stable platform. Uh, the, the golf swing requires precise footwork. The power of a golf swing is generated in the legs. Uh, and there needs to be a reproducible weight transfer. So Tiger's back right leg, uh, which was severely injured, needs to transfer the weight to the front leg during the golf swing. The problems I see with his recovery are, are people with these severe foot and leg injuries can have chronic pain. They can have swelling. Sometimes it lasts the rest of their life uh, in their foot and ankle. And the more they're up on their feet, the more they swell. They can have weakness of the leg, lack of flexibility in the joints. Uh, and then uh, the other area of concern is, is in December, Tiger had a back, uh, back surgery. Um, and uh, he wasn't fully recovered from that. And we all know car accidents can cause um, injuries to the spine and back. And so that's a big concern. That, that all said, uh, my experience in treating elite athletes, whether professional athletes or, or high-level college athletes, I'm always amazed at how well they recover, uh, their, their, their motivation and their, their body, uh, we always say uh, that the, they, they make us look good with, with the surgeries we do on them. And Tiger Woods is no exception. He's already proven he's no ordinary athlete. Uh, he's, he's the best golfer in the world uh, during our lifetime. Uh, and um, my feeling is I think Tiger is going to look at this as, as the ultimate challenge, and he's going to... Uh, uh, I think he's going to work his, his hardest to, to get back and, and compete at the highest level. Thank you, Chris. Um, let's, I, I, let's go back to the feet for a second. Um, and I, I think you're right. I think this comes down to weight transfer, uh, pain, ability to walk. Um, I don't know. How smashed do you think his ankle really was? Was it? If it was crushed, is there any chance he can come back? Um, and what do you is is that really where the the whole shebang is? Is that where is that the key? Yeah. So so this was uh, high energy trauma, which means the forces were really significant. 
So the you know if you if you take a bone and you take a sledgehammer to a bone and break it into a million pieces, it's it's really impossible to anatomically recreate the the structure of the bone. Um, you know if it's a low energy injury, sometimes it's just one crack in the bone, and you can realign that that crack and then put screws across it. So we don't really know. Um, how smashed his his ankle or foot was, um, uh, but um, obviously it it, uh, it it sounds like it was pretty significant. These these uh, these foot injuries and car accidents can be can be very severe. So it really depends on what what the surgeons had to work with. If they could put recreate the anatomy and put the bones back together, um, then then he has a much better chance of a uh, a, a more full recovery. You know, you talked about how athletes are just different than the rest of us, particularly at the high end. Um, and it, his level of mental toughness is just out of this world. Do you think um, that tough mental ability will allow him, if assuming his the physics and the biology are, are in line, uh, to allow him to come back, and do you think um, he'll just in in the documentary he talks about um, how he changed his swing to to constantly improve? Do you imagine what he will do here is just uh, amend his his process to allow for this new bodily change to to work itself through? Yeah, no doubt. I mean, we we've seen we've seen Tiger already overcome. So many challenges that he's that he's had in his life, and he's come back and and won at the highest level uh, at the Masters. So um, th- I I don't think there's any doubt, um, given given uh, his ability to heal from these injuries, that that he has the mental toughness. I, I I'm not sure that there there are many athletes that um, have that kind of mental toughness. I would put him at the top of the list. When you think about other athletes who've had similar injuries um, and they've come back, what what have they had that resembles Tiger's situation uh, that have allowed them to reorient themselves to come back at the highest level? Yeah. So the most uh, the most recent example is Alex Smith, uh, quarterback for the the Washington football team. Uh, he he had a very severe tibia fracture uh, that was also an open fracture, uh, and his his recovery was complicated by a, a very terrible infection, where he basically lost all of the muscle in 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 and around his leg, uh, and um, he was uh, his he was treated with uh, with uh, free muscle flap uh, and skin grafting. I think he had something like 17 operations, and um, uh, went to a very specialized uh, rehabilitation center in, in Texas. And um, uh, we all saw he, he was able to come back and play in an NFL football game, uh, which, which um, is, uh, you know, by some accounts, um, maybe more strenuous than golf, although uh, what Tiger has to do is he has to be able to stand and walk and and swing 
at a very pre- precise level over a, over a very long, you know, you know, five hours, five hours in a day uh, during each round. So, so it's 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 a little different, but um, this is an example of somebody who's who's come back and 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 overcome that injury. Do you think they'll give him a cart? Well, I you know I th- you know. This year, I, I believe I, I remember a story where John Daly, uh, who had won the PGA Championship, um, requested a cart for that that major, um, and uh, he he was not granted he, a cart. Um, there was the Casey Martin uh, a number of years ago had a lower extremity problem, and I think legally he pursued and, and maybe was granted a cart. So I'm just guessing, but I would say that uh, in, in my opinion, I think um, Tiger would work towards, if he's going to return, he's going to return without a golf cart. <laughs> what else, um, what else do, you, do you think is... Um we talked about is the mental requirements of of of, of training. Um, there's going to be a level of pain, um, but like like how much pain are we talking about? I mean, he also has this this spinal fusion, which really limits his options in terms of his flexibility. Um, now he's got like two major hinges of his swing that are going to be problematic. I mean, he talked about the pain of his back, and now we have the pain of his foot and the pain of his his leg. At what point will this just be just too painful to continue? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, people that remember the 2008 U.S. Open where he had an ACL tear and he and he had a, a tibial fracture um, during uh, that that tournament. You could see him swing and wince in pain. Uh, you know, I think he has the mental toughness and um, to try to make it back. Uh, you know, it all depends on how the leg heals. Uh, I think, you know, uh, pain pain level is different for for everybody, and um, you know, it really comes down to if if he develops arthritis in the in the joints, then that's really going to be the source of of a lot of the pain. Once the bones heal, generally, most people don't have a lot of chronic pain from from fractures that are away from the joint, but if if the joint deteriorates, that's that's where a lot of the pain comes in. And the other problem is 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 the swelling. People with very bad lower extremity injuries, the more they're on their feet, their their, their foot swells. And just being in a golf shoe, walking around, um, and your foot then blows up to twice the size of what it what it normally is, mm-hmm. was going to preclude him from. Um, from really competing, you know, at a, at elite level golf. I imagine that information about Tiger's injuries will be coming in ebbs and flows. What what if you had one question that you wanted to find out? What would it be? What would you want to learn about to evaluate some of these probabilities? Yeah, I think that the main thing is 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 what exactly what type of foot injuries uh, he he had and. And what was the level of the the open fracture? There, the open fractures in the, in the tibia are are graded 
um, and and there's you know there's you know basically open fractures that require immediate amputation, and there's other open fractures that require um, you know that are going to heal as if it wasn't an open fracture, just a little poke hole through the skin. So so those are probably the two the two questions I would want to know. All right. At this point of the show is when I ask for um, levels of uh, ideas of optimism. Uh, we generally have very negative calls. We worry about COVID. We worry about efficiency and efficacy of vaccines. And now we've got Tiger too. So I, I like to end on a note of optimism. And I'll start with you, Chris. What are you optimistic about uh, as it relates to Tiger? I'm optimistic that, uh, you know, he's, you know, aside from golf, if, if he never swings another golf club, um, he, he, he should recover from this and, and be a father and raise his children. And, um, um, you know, he'll, he'll, he, he should live a full, long life. And uh, I, think, I think that's most important. Thank you. Richard, what are you optimistic about? Well, I'm optimistic that, um, you know, we're evolving toward a mainstream society that will be visibly more diverse than it has been, and that I hope in the long run will provide room for African-Americans to make it in as well. Thank you. Tevi, what are you optimistic about? I'm optimistic about America. I think you can never bet against America. I think the technologies that we've seen in terms of the rapid vaccine development and the use of telemedicine and the uh, advances in coronavirus testing are uh, reasons for optimism. I think that uh, if we had had this kind of shutdown 30 years ago without the, uh, the Internet and all of the tech apps that we have, uh, it would have been mass chaos, even worse than we have now. And I just think for America, the brightest days are always ahead, as Ronald Reagan used to say. Thank you. Uh, Jacob, what about you? Sure. I think the, the upside of the pandemic is it's really shed much clearer light on healthcare disparities. Uh, particularly in non-white populations. And I think for the first time, the uh, majority is suddenly seeing how these disparities not just impact uh, African-Americans and Latinos, but also impact them during times of crisis, and hopefully they will take action as a result. Thank you. All right, well, that ends uh, today's program. I'm just going to plug uh, next week's program for a second. I have two co-hosts. I have Patrick Allen, a history professor from Emory, and Todd Benson, uh, a former investment banker buddy of mine, will be uh, co-hosting the show. Uh, we have Christine Rosen. Uh, we'll discuss the Me Too movement. Ernest Freeberg will discuss uh, Thomas Edison. Uh, David Grazian, a sociologist at UPenn, will discuss a Bonfire of the Vanities. So you may want to uh, pick up that book again. And Julie Solomon, who is the former uh, Wall Street Journal and uh, New York Times film critic, will discuss the making of the movie um, Bonfire of the Vanities. So it's a special Bonfire of the Vanities discussion. And then we have two experts in consumer behavior uh, who are friends of Todd's. All right, with that, that ends today's program. I want to thank our speakers for their insights and their time, and always to our listeners for their attention uh, and listening in. Uh, with that, that ends today's call. Uh, thank you. You may disconnect. Goodbye.